Right, Romans chapter number 3, beginning in verse number 19. Romans 3, verse 19. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcision through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid, yea, we establish the law. I want to speak this morning on the subject, Objective Faith. This is our faith series, and I will explain the title uh, as soon as we pray and ask the Lord's blessings on the message. Father, uh, thank you for your grace and goodness. And Lord, I, I am very, very aware of the fact that this congregation and everyone listening uh, certainly uh, deserve a better messenger than myself. Lord, I pray that you would bless us regardless of this earthen vessel. I pray, Father, that you would use uh, us for the glory and honor of God and for the good of uh, each and every hearer. Lord, our first request is that somehow you'd uh, use the message today to draw someone to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. I pray, secondly, for every child of God that's here today, Lord, that something would be said that would instruct and Teach them the doctrine and help us to realize what we have in Jesus Christ. Uh, Lord, the devil no doubt uh, fights uh, in so many ways to attack your people. One of the areas is through false doctrine or through doctrinal ignorance. So please, Lord, help us here today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to say, first of all, before I just... uh, clarify what objective faith means is I'd like to say that this passage that we just read is chock full of very important Bible doctrines. And there is no way, I mean, just as I was reading this text to you here this morning, uh, almost every verse I could think of, well, there's a message in and of itself right there. Well, there's a truth in and of itself. So many doctrines right here in Romans chapter number 3 In fact, the entire book of Romans is a building block of foundational Christian truths. But when I say the the title, Objective Faith, 
I'd like to explain that the term being objective, it, it is related to belonging to or contained in the object. Objective is when the truth contained in the object while being subjective is when the truth is just simply in our minds. You know, we live in a generation where uh, people think that faith is merely subjective. And I'll say more about that here in just a moment. But often we think of faith as something that's felt or only as something that is personal. You know, the world doesn't mind if we talk about our faith. If we say, hey, let me tell you about my faith. The world doesn't mind if we say that. The world can be very religious and they don't mind people telling their story or how they feel about something. It basically just becomes kind of a biography biography or a, a nice story. And we like to relate and see where other people are coming from. And there's nothing wrong with that. But our faith can be all of that. It can be felt. It can be personal. And it can still be very much in vain. There are so many belief systems in this world. In fact, some people are so convinced in their own minds that their faith is true, that they would die for their faith. And some, as we are keenly aware of, would even kill for their faith, or even both. You know, there are many people that are of the the religion of Islam. And there are many of them that are so devote, their faith is so subjective They're convinced in their minds and in their hearts that they are right, that they will do some pretty extreme things in order to demonstrate their faith. People today confuse faith with feeling. Objective faith to the average believer today is not that important. If you compare the songs in that hymnal that's right in front of your knees to the songs of modern Christianity today, the praise and the worship you would find that you could almost put those in a different file system. Forget about traditional versus contemporary. You could almost relabel those file systems as objective faith versus subjective faith. The modern Christian song today is all about how God makes me feel or how I feel about God, but the old hymns were very objective. They were very doctrinal. When's the last time that you heard a modern Christian hymn that focused on the doctrine of the blood of Jesus Christ? Oh, you find all kinds of songs about the love of God, and I appreciate the love of God. You find all kinds of songs about heaven, and you find all kinds of songs about relationship and what God did for me, but you just don't find the same objective hymnology that you had in the songs of yesterday. Now, subjective faith, once again, that's when the truth is basically what's in my mind rather than the object. Subjective faith, to believe or feel this way, is to contradict and to insult the very words of Jesus Christ. You know what people say today? People say, well, that's your truth. I have my truth And you have your truth. You know, that's a very ridiculous statement, wouldn't you agree? It's about as ridiculous as our House of Representatives, who just a few days ago, they passed a bill to legalize nationally the use of marijuana. 
for recreational purposes. And in the passing of that bill, now thank God, it probably is not going to pass the Senate, and I'm glad for that. But the House of Representatives, and and listen, it was, I think, all but two Democrats voted in favor, and there were only a couple of Republicans that voted in favor. So a very liberal bill along party lines, Republican and Democrat. But the reason stated behind their desire to legalize marijuana is so that they can tax it, and with that revenue, they can fight the war on drugs. You, you know, you know what that's, you know what that would be like? That would be like someone saying, you know what? We're gonna have our championship game. We're gonna have our Super Bowl in January. We've already got the two teams selected to fight it out in the Super Bowl. And what we're gonna do is, uh, team A is going to raise a bunch of money so that they can buy the anabolic steroids for the team that they're playing. So that they can get all juiced up on steroids and be massively superior and then we're gonna, uh, we're gonna try to defeat them in the Super Bowl. Now that, that would be ridiculous. But that's exactly what they're doing. Now speaking of two teams playing, congratulations all of you Tar Heels fans. And my condolences to all of you Duke Blue Devil fans. Why did it get so quiet? People are afraid. Yeah. I thought that I would get a little bit more response from that. Maybe most of you don't care. I, there were fireworks going off in our, uh, in our neighborhood last night. I thought somebody was shooting a gun. But uh, anyhow... Uh, that was kind of neat, though, that the, the Duke's coach, his very last game, was against arch-rival in the Final Four. And so, anyhow, congratulations and condolences, and for the rest of you, I'll move on to Bible truth. How's that sound? Subjective truth, or subjective faith, is, well, I have my truth, you have your truth, And to have subjective faith, or to even think that subjective faith is a normal way of viewing life and death and eternity is to contradict and to insult the very words of Jesus Christ. Here's just two sample verses that are crystal clear. No, I mean, no room for interpretation or argument whatsoever. John 3 and verse number 3 Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You know, there have been many liberal preachers over the years that when they're cornered and someone asks them a question, well, what about the heathen in Africa that have never heard? And I won't mention any names here today, but everyone would know uh, one particular man's name. And he got kind of cornered by the press, and he he literally came out and said, well, you know, I think that if someone doesn't know what they're searching for, but, you know, they're, they're, they're kind of seeking, then I, I believe we'll see them in heaven. Now, that certainly sounds nice, and it would be hard to criticize, you know, the world would have a hard time criticizing that 
type of a preacher. But the fact of the matter is, Jesus said that a man's got to be born again. Jesus didn't pull any punches. Jesus didn't, Jesus wasn't trying to win a public relations contest. Jesus wasn't marketing his influence. He was simply telling the truth. And basically, when it comes to truth, if it's absolute, we can either take it or we can leave it. We can either like it or we can lump it. And so it's an insult to Jesus to say, well, as long as you're sincere and you really mean it, then God's going to let you into heaven. No, that's, it doesn't work that way. And, and I don't like saying it, but it's still the truth. Amen? How about John 14, verse number 6? Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. There is no other way. If you're gonna, if you're gonna escape the damnation of hell, if you're gonna make it to heaven, if you're gonna make it to glory, there's only one way. It's through Jesus Christ and the new birth. You were born physically. You know, everybody knows their birthday. That was a physical birth, but for you to make it to heaven, something has to happen to you. You've got to be born again because we come into this world spiritually dead but physically alive and when we leave this world physically dead it's of utmost importance that we leave this world spiritually alive and a change has to take place and only God can make that change when i think about objective faith i think of the just the one of the best uh, illustrations that I've ever, it's just so simple, but I've heard it so many times. You've probably heard it before, but the illustration of the chair. You know, here's a chair and you're sitting in a pew. And I guarantee you that when you sat down in that pew, there were probably very few of you that before you sat down that you, that you did this or you worried about it or you didn't necessarily test it to see if it would support your weight. You had faith that the pew you're sitting in, or just as I'm sitting in this chair, you had faith that it would support you. Now, I ask you a question here today. Is my faith supporting me? Or is this chair supporting me? Now, my faith, my faith enabled me to trust this chair and to rest in it. But that's the only part that my faith played. That would be my uh, I, I guess not my objective faith. The objective faith is the chair itself. But my subjective faith gave me enough trust so that I could rest my weight on that chair to hold me up. The same way when you deposit money in a bank. it's You may have faith in that bank. You can believe in it, but it's still the bank that is going to have to keep your money safe. And in our text that we read, there is three specific things that are part of our objective faith. The object that we need to place our faith in. The first one is in verse 19 through 20. And that is the law. Objective faith in the law. Verse 19, now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Notice it says all the world. That's important. 
And then he says, therefore, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for the, by the law is the knowledge of sin. This was an important point to the Jewish audience, as well as to a certain, uh, a certain amount of the Gentile audience, especially in New Testament times. There were many of the Gentiles in New Testament lands that they were still familiar with Judaism, with the Jewish law. There were, there were Jews, according to the Lord, that were going around making proselytes. And Paul even said that their sound, that it went to the ends of the world. So there were certainly Jewish people who were propagating the righteousness of the law even to a Gentile world. They weren't fellowshipping, but they were certainly propagating. The Jews had the written law, while the Gentiles had the law written in their minds and in their conscience. And we're in Romans chapter number 3. If you were to back up and read Romans 1 and verse number 2, you would see that clearly, that even though the Gentiles in the time of the apostles, and when Paul wrote this, they didn't have the book of Exodus chapter 20. They didn't have the Ten Commandments. They didn't have the Scripture. But Paul made it clear that they had a conscience and that the laws of God were written in their minds. You know, there are certain things that I don't care what man tries to do. We know down deep it's wrong. Murdering someone. I I don't care how far we drift away, we know down deep that there are certain things that are sins, they're crimes, and that they're not right. They're against any kind of moral code. Notice it says here in verse 20 that by the deeds of the law that no flesh shall be justified in the sight of God. Now, nevertheless... It's important that we realize that the law was still, before Christ, it was the standard for righteousness. And that's why the apostle said here that by the law is the knowledge of sin. Certainly for righteousness, the Old Testament law played a part in that. The moral laws of God are much like the natural laws of science. For example... The law of gravity. The law of gravity can be defied. It can be overcome. If you've ever flown in a jet, something's overcoming that law of gravity. And the law of gravity can even be denied. But only on occasion and only temporarily, ultimately we all know that gravity is going to win every time. Hey, you can use a walker, but if you're not careful, eventually gravity will win. Some of you have heard of Sean White, a red-headed, uh, kind of long-haired, X-game snowboarder guy, won all kinds of gold medals, and every time he compete, competes in snowboarding, it seems like he wins the championship. And, and he, in, in all reality, he's famous for his ability to defy and to maneuver gravity. But while he was preparing for the 2018 Olympics in China, gravity won. This is what he had to say. He said, I thought I'd knock my teeth out or something because it was all numb. I was just sitting there like, I'm really wet right now. What's going on, said White. 
Surviving miraculously, White required more than 60 stitches on his face. The crash also caused heavy internal bruising, and he had blood and fluid gathering in his lungs. Man, here's a guy that could defy gravity, skilled at hitting those, those ramps and those pipes and just spinning all over the place as if he was flying. But always, gravity wins because it is a natural law. The moral laws work very much the same way. Listen, you may be a wonderful person. You may be, I mean, a truly wonderful person. You may be better than most. In fact, you may be, you may be ten times better than the preacher here today, and that wouldn't surprise me. But the law is going to get you eventually. You're going to crash. If your faith is in your ability or your track record to keep the law or to be a good person, then I will say this. If you're going to bypass what Jesus said, you must be born again, and you're really trusting that, hey, I'm really a pretty decent person, then I've got news for you. If you're going to make it to heaven, and you're going to escape God's damnation that He has upon sinners, then you're going to have to keep the law impeccably. That means that there has to never be a time in your life where you broke the law of God, where you did anything to break the commandments of the Lord. You never committed a sin. You never had a fault. You would have to be just as perfect as Jesus Christ was. Now, I don't have any cameras in your house. I don't have your phone or uh, your, your car bugged. But I do know something about every single one of you that I'm preaching to here this morning, you have broken the commandments of God. You've sinned. And uh, some of us more than others. And certainly the devil likes to remind us of all of that. But the bottom line is if you're not perfect, then you're going to fall short. I've said this before, but it's a great illustration. If your life is like a ladder climbing to heaven then um, you may get it. You may get to where there's only one rung between you and heaven, but you miss it by one rung, you end up in the same place as the person that only got three rungs up. It's not going to make any difference when it's all said and done. The Bible says that if man were justified by works, someone like Abraham in the Old Testament would have whereof to glory. You know, he was a great guy. And he had faith, and he had character, and he had integrity. He was, I mean, his good far outweighed his bad. And so if if we're justified by works, he had a lot to glory in. But Romans 4 says, but not before God. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That doesn't matter if you're a child or a young adult or an old-timer. It really doesn't matter. We've all sinned and come short of God's glory. Folks, we live in a society that's becoming more and more lawless. As I've said, truth is just, in, in the eyes of people, it's subjective. And because of that, listen, God's power is not lessened. He is still wanting to save people. His arms are stretched out still. The Bible says, Paul said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Same gospel, same power. But yet, 
Why don't we see very many people saved? I'll tell you why. Because we've removed the law out of our society. We've become lawless and without the law. Notice what we read here in verse number 20. By the law is the knowledge of sin. You know, there are laws. On, there's, I mean, there's tons of laws on the books um, of our of our uh, local, there's local laws, there's federal laws. And, you know, there, I guarantee you that you've broken laws that you don't even know you've broken. I, you know, there was things that I didn't even know. I, I mentioned here, uh, I think about a month ago while we were going through COVID and I was stuck in my chair in my living room for so long, I started watching these game warden shows where the game wardens are finding the people who don't have fishing licenses and people that, uh, that don't have life jackets when they're supposed to, and all these things. And I'm, I'm watching this, and I'm going, wow, going hunting and fishing is way more complicated than I thought. And I'm finding out all these things. Man, I've broken that law. I broke that law. I had no idea that you weren't supposed to do that. I mean, I can remember, uh, I can remember there was some laws where it's like you can't shoot a deer when it's traveling from where it's bedding down to where it's feeding. You can't shoot it while it's feeding. You can't shoot it while it's resting. And I'm thinking, what else do deer do? I draw the conclusion, you can't shoot deer. So why am I buying a license to shoot deer? And you know what I'm saying. I'm being exaggerative and facetious. But the fact of the matter is, we have all broken civil laws, and we don't even know it. I guarantee you, I guarantee you, you've broken IRS laws when you filed your taxes. Not not intentionally, but there's a lot of laws. And it's probably stuff that you just had no idea about. It's the way that the legal system works. But I guarantee you, if you break a law, and then you get caught, and you pay the punishment for that law, all of a sudden now you're painfully aware of that law. You know, I spent my high school years not exactly being the most law-abiding teenager. You know, teen, I was a typical teen that was just had, was living worldly, and you're just always doing what you want to do, hoping you didn't get caught. And so I remember for, for I was probably in my 30s before I could see a flashing blue light and my gut not knot up. I mean, literally, it's like I wouldn't be doing anything wrong. This is after I got right with the Lord. I see a flash in blue light, my gut knots up. Why? Because I spent three or four years knowing that I'm guilty and hoping that I wouldn't get caught. You know, that knotting up of my gut was a very good thing because it reminded me that there is a law and I better not break it. You know what the problem with our culture today is we're lawless. And so the preacher can preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it's water on a duck's back. Nobody seems to care. Nobody's gut gets knotted up. Why? Because the devil has skillfully taken the law, the moral law, God's law, out of our culture, even out of our churches. And without that law, there is no knowledge of sin. Now that I can get up here and I can preach to you that, hey, you shouldn't lie. And you will mentally agree. Uh, You're right. I know. Lying is wrong. Lying is a sin. But you go on and you continue to sin. 
without really feeling too guilty about it, because that law, you haven't, you haven't recognized that you just broke the law of the creator of the universe, your creator, your God, the one that has the power to put your soul in an eternal hell, and you don't even really recognize it. Yeah, I know, I shouldn't have done that, that was wrong. But when the law, when we truly have the law in our heart as an objective truth, now we recognize the fact that, wow, I'm in trouble. I'm not just in a little trouble. I'm in bad trouble. And only then, remember when Peter, we we talked about this last week, I think, when Peter is sinking as he's walking on the water. Peter Peter wasn't analyzing, you know, the, the, the sinking into the water. He simply recognized that he was sinking and he cried out. He didn't say, oh, excuse me, Jesus. Um, he didn't start rationalizing it. He didn't have an argument. He didn't have anything to prove. Uh, Jesus, I'm a really good person. Do you think maybe you could give me? No, he didn't do any of that. He felt the gravity, interesting term that I just used, the gravity of his humanity, I can't float, I can't walk on this water myself. I'm sinking. And he cried out and he said, Lord, save me. And of course, Jesus saved him. We don't find very many people recognizing the gravity of their sin that, hey, I'm sinking into a devil's hell. Jonathan Edwards preached a message, sinners in the hands of an angry God. And he got up and he wrote, he read that message. He, didn't, he wasn't making much eye contact. He's reading a script. He's reading a message in a monotone voice. And literally, there were hundreds of people listening that were, had tears running down their eyes and they're crying out as if they felt that they were getting ready to get dropped into hell at that very moment. You know, you had several things going. You had the power of the Holy Spirit, yes. But you also had some people that had been taught the law of God. And when the man of God got up and told the truth, it had an effect. Their gut was nodding up. Their brow began to sweat because they realized that this isn't just some preacher up there railing on me. This preacher is telling me the truth. I better do something about it or I'm toast. We just don't see a whole lot of that here today. And the reason being is because... The objective truth of the law has been taken out of our culture. And that brings me to the second objective truth that we find in our text, and that's in verse number 22, and that's the faith of Jesus Christ. Look at it with me once again, verse 22, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith, watch this, of, by faith of Jesus Christ. Notice Paul did not say by faith in Jesus Christ. This is an objective truth. We get the righteousness of God by the faith of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the chair. It's not my faith in Christ that saves me, but it is Christ's faith that does the saving. And so we can ask our question, you know, it means what it says. It's just crystal clear. Listen, think about it this way. You and I can talk to just about anyone in the world, practically anywhere, by simply picking up a phone, 
getting the, the screen up there and dialing, we can dial almost anyone anywhere in, on the planet and we can have a conversation with them. Now, I don't know if you're familiar, how familiar you are with technology, but I want you to think about all of the technology and equipment that had to happen to make that happen, just, just to make that phone call happen. Inside of your phone, you have circuit boards, you have plastic, you have wiring, you have battery and power and all those things. It's a complex piece of equipment. But beyond that, you have massive cell phone towers. You have billion dollar plus satellites that are, that are all circumference. What are they doing? Orbiting the earth. You have that. You have uh, central offices that are connected sometimes through fiber optics and switches and all these just massive amounts of technology that all have to be interchanged and working together just for you to make a simple phone call. You know, not to mention the, you know, surf the internet or to text message. All of that is different communication. Now, when you think about that, if you want to talk to someone on the other side of the world, you just dial their number and you talk to them. Now, the means of you talking to them, was it dialing the number or was it all of the equipment and technology that was in place in order to make that connection happen? See, and that's the way it is with our faith in Christ. All we have the ability to do is to just dial the number or to make the call. Romans chapter 10 says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's our faith. But our faith is not the object of our faith that actually does the saving. It is the faith of Jesus Christ. Listen, when he died on the cross, his humanity shrank from the suffering. He said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But then he said, nevertheless, my will, but thy will be done. Jesus in his humanity had to submit to his father's plan to redeem the human race. It is his faith that does the actual saving. Once again, our faith just simply makes the call. And then the third object of our faith is found in verse number 25, very often forgotten object of our faith, and that is the blood of Jesus Christ. Verse 25, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. The blood of Jesus Christ is not just symbolic. It's not just a representation. It is what we put our faith in, in order to become righteous, in order to be saved. The blood was always what God accepted to atone for the breaking of the law and human errors and sins or whatever we want to label those things. You know, the Muslims have a hard time with our Bible teaching of atonement. To the Muslim, they believe in a God that if you want his forgiveness, all you have to do is ask. But that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is a just and a holy God. 
And I've said this before, and it's certainly worth repeating. Let's say, for instance, that somebody brutally murdered your little five-year-old girl. I mean, just, it, it was horrible, horrible. And they got caught, and they were going to trial. And you're sitting there, obviously, you want that, that criminal, that horrible person, you want them to be punished for what they did to your little girl. And you're sitting there, and as the trial begins, the judge says to the criminal, do you have anything to say for yourself before this trial begins? And he stands up, and his hands are folded, and he's as polite as he can be. He even calls the judge, sir. Sir, I ask that you forgive me for what I did. And can you imagine? I mean, listen, if the judge says, wow, that's, that's very, very humble of you. Uh, okay, I forgive you. You're free to go. Now, if you're that man, you're thinking, wow, that judge is pretty good. He's a good guy. He's merciful. He's kind. He's gracious. But if you're the parent sitting there in the audience, you would think that that's the worst judge that ever lived. Because you're the victim. And so, if we would, if we would think of that judge as an unrighteous and an unjust judge, why would we think of God if He just simply forgave on the merits of our request and there wasn't an actual payment? If the law had been broken and the righteous payment of the law had not been met, then we would look at that judge as a very unrighteous judge. And that's why our text says that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus Christ. The law is so perfect and holy that God in his perfection and holiness cannot violate his own law. And when the law says, for the wages of sin is death, then for my sins and for your sins, somebody's got to pay for that. And it's either going to be us or a propitiation, a substitute, an atonement. And we all know, I hope we know, who that substitute is. It's Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. I have a picture here that belonged to my father-in-law, Brother Runyon, and he had this right in front of his desk in his office, and I inherited it. I actually requested it after he passed away, and it's one of my favorite artist depictions of the cross that I've ever seen. And actually, you see very little of Jesus Christ. You see his feet up here in the corner, and you see the blood dripping down the cross, but you see the Roman centurion who was standing there, and I believe that this is a picture of that Roman centurion that watched how the Son of God responded to how the people were, uh, were gnashing upon Him with their teeth, and how they were just brutalizing Him and mocking Him. And He hung there on the cross, and He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I think about the thief on the cross. There was two of them. They're both railing on Him. And one of them says, says, uh, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And you know, Jesus didn't say to that thief on the cross, he didn't say, look, you need to go be a good person. You need to be baptized. You need to join my church and all those things. 
He simply said he saw his heart and he recognized that here's a man that is believing in me. And not only, if you think about it, there was more to that statement than just the thief saying, hey, I don't want to go to hell, I want to go to heaven. He said, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. I don't even know if the, if the thief really consciously thought it through, but he was believing in the resurrection right then and there. He knew that when the Son of God here dies, it's not going to be the end. He is going to be in His kingdom. He is resurrecting, and He believed in that. And that's why the Lord said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Listen, I, I, I don't, the, the Roman centurion, as he looked at Jesus there on the cross, we don't find any record of his confession other than he just simply said that he, he believed that this was the Son of God. We don't find that uh, anywhere that talks about him getting regenerated or born again, but I really think pretty strongly that when we get to heaven, he's going to be there. Something changed in his heart. He went from a sinner to a convicted sinner, recognizing that, hey, what I just partook in, what I just gave assent to, or I, I might have, he might have ordered those men to drive the nails. And that Roman centurion recognized that this man here didn't do anything wrong. He's hanging, he's going through that because of my sins. And that objectivity of the law and, and his own consciousness and that objectivity of recognizing that this truly is the Son of God. This isn't a fairy tale. This isn't tomorrow's newspaper report. This isn't anything that's marketing. This is the very Son of God dying for the sins of the human race. And that precious blood that is flowing down His body and down that cross onto this ground is the blood that God is looking for to make an atonement for my sins. That Levitical priest in the Old Testament would have to slay that bullock. And he'd take of that slain bullock and they'd put the blood in a basin and they'd take and they'd, he'd anoint his right ear and his right thumb and his right big toe and he'd take that blood with all of those priestly holy garments and he'd go into the holy place and he'd be sprinkling that on the candlestick and all of those furnishings and the instruments and he's going, he's sprinkling that blood and that tabernacle was a representation of the universe that God created. Inside that veil, he's sprinkling that blood as he goes. And then there's the, the veil in front the ho- that separated from the holy place to the holy of holies. And behind that veil was a mercy seat that sat upon the Ark of the Covenant. And that mercy seat represented God sitting on that mercy seat. And only that high priest... Only him could go behind that veil and present that blood there at the mercy seat to a holy God. All of that was a picture of what our Savior Jesus Christ did on the cross of Calvary. He didn't take the blood of a bullock. He took his own blood as of a lamb, a a lamb without spot and without blemish. That high priest had to atone for his own sins with a blood sacrifice before he could ever take that blood sacrifice and atone for the people. 
It was a picture, but it was an imperfect picture. But Jesus was perfect, sinless. His blood was without any error whatsoever. And He went, He died on the cross of Calvary. He took His blood sometime during that resurrection moment. You remember when Mary came up to Him and she began to grab Him around His feet and say, Rabboni, she was so elated that her Lord had resurrected from the tomb. And what did Jesus say? He said, touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my God and your God. And then in one of the other Gospels, just just moments later, He says to Thomas, touch me, Thomas. Thrust thy hand in my side. You know what? Something happened in space and time. You know, uh, Jesus' resurrection body can travel at the speed of thought. Man, that's so much faster than the speed of light. Sometime during that time, he went to the third heaven and he presented his priestly blood there before a holy God. And he came back and he said to the disciples, peace be unto you. The redemptive work is done. Our Father has accepted my blood. And through faith in my blood, all of mankind can be saved. Thank God for that objective truth of the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus, I believe, saved the Roman centurion. I believe He saved the thief on the cross. We find that He saved the Apostle Paul. You know, if you take the righteousness of the law, Paul said, I'm blameless. And yet Paul was so dead wrong that he was persecuting God's people, persecuting the church to to the degree that Paul said when Jesus saved him, he said he saved the chiefest of sinners. And yet you couldn't find any fault in Paul's religion, at least from an Old Testament standpoint. If he can save the chiefest of sinners, he can save you too problem is not in his ability to save. The problem is not in the objectivity, the, the cross of Calvary. The problem lies with us. And so in conclusion, I want to just talk briefly about man's righteousness versus the righteousness of God. I think about automobiles. Uh, boy, we've come a long way with cars, have we not? I want to show you a picture. This isn't the actual vehicle, but I had a 76 Dodge pickup very much like this picture. And yes, it was Carolina blue like that. And it had a slant six, 225. It had three on the tree. Some of you young people have no idea what three on the tree is. I feel sorry for you. You don't even know what a pickup really is. It had no power brakes. It had no power steering. I owned this when we got married, and so sometimes my wife would have to drive it, and of course she's got that three on the tree, it's got a big old steering wheel, and it was my favorite truck I've ever owned. I'd love to have that truck today. I mean, it still had a, um, a carburetor with a choke on it. I mean, it, it, had, it had windshield wipers. I know because they broke one time and I had to fix them. I mean, you think about that compared to my son's truck. 
his new Dodge. I had some fun with you here a while back about driving it to church and joking like he gave me the, his truck. And I, I never said he gave me his truck. He gave me it to drive to church. But man, you talk about amazing technology. You, you open the, the door, the passenger side door, and the, the, the running, running boards actually go, they lower so that you can step up to it. When he was backing out of our driveway, we've got kind of a block wall over here. Well, he didn't want to run in and, you know, scratch his back bumper, so he pushes a button and actually raises the truck up so that it clears that block wall. As I was driving it, literally, the speedometer and the the direction that we're going, it's actually projecting it on the windshield. I, I have no idea how it's doing that. You know, I didn't... I didn't try to do this and see how it's getting, but I'm just knowing I'm seeing it right here on the windshield. And I'm sure that there's things about that truck, security and cameras and all of that. And you compare where we've come in vehicles to where we used to come. And boy, just like the the old billboards used to say, uh, you've come a long way, baby. Wasn't that Virginia Slim's? Some of you know. Wow, what progress, what 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 progressiveness for uh, for uh, you ladies. And yet the reality is, whether it's old blue or whether it's my son's brand new 2022 Dodge pickup, the fact of the matter is, they all break down, don't they, brother Ralph? They all break down, and when they break down, it's pretty costly. The consequences are pretty big. If you think about Paul's religion before Christ, if Paul's religion was an automobile, he would have been a Tesla Model S. Uh, That's supposedly the highest tech car today. Paul says about himself in Philippians 3, verse number 6, he said, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is of the law, blameless. Wow, that's amazing. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung that I may win Christ. That's some straight, simple talk that even us country people can understand. That's what Paul thought of any good thing about him. He counted them as dung in comparison to what we really need, and that is Jesus Christ. Look at verse 26 once again. To declare, I say at this time, His righteousness. Listen, no matter how wicked you've been, you can be made righteous. No matter how devoted or sincere you've been to your beliefs, it will not be enough. I'm not trying to talk anybody out of their salvation. I'm not trying to retread anyone here this morning. But I got news for you. If your faith is simply in a prayer that you prayed when you were a child and it made no difference in your life. If you think when you get to stand before God and God says, why should I let you into heaven? And you say, well... 
I responded to Brother Wilson's message and I went forward. So I must be saved because that's what Brother Wilson said to do. And that may all be true and it all may be right. But the question is, did you get born again? Did it change your life? Did you get your sins forgiven? Were you regenerated? Was your faith subjective? Well, I had a good feeling. You, you, listen, subjective faith can be in the truth, but if it's only subjective and not objective, then it's never going to be enough to get you to heaven because if it's subjective, ultimately you're trusting in you and what you did. It's never going to be enough. Listen, if we could just, if, if our own faith and our own religion and our own devotion, our own goodness could get us to heaven, then why in the world would Jesus go through what He went through in order to redeem our worthless souls? Makes no sense whatsoever. Why should I let you into heaven? Well, Lord, I've been been a pretty good person. I haven't killed anybody. I've been a pretty good neighbor. I've given my employer, a, a, you know, eight for eight, and you know, I'm just I'm a I'm a pretty good old boy and. I can imagine God with Jesus sitting at His right hand and God looking over to Jesus and Jesus looking at the nails in His hands and His feet and the scars and probably going, well, Lord, why did I go through that? He didn't need me. Of course, we know the real answer is we all need Him. You need the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 20. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For he, that's God, hath made him, that's Jesus Christ, to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Is your faith objective or is it just simply subjective? Is it in your mind? Is it in your memory? Do you have it written down on a card and that's really all you have to go on? Or is there a time where you know beyond any shadow of a doubt you came to God as a sinner, admitting that you were a sinner, and recognizing that Jesus Christ died on the cross for you and that it was personal and that He did it for your sin? And you received Him. You called upon Him to be your Savior. Calling upon Him isn't what saves you. It only is dialing the phone and getting His attention. Our faith can't save us, folks. But the faith of Jesus Christ certainly can. Is yours objective or is it subjective? If you can't really believe with all of your heart that you're putting your faith and trust in Him and Him alone, then I I would highly recommend that you turn loose of whatever you're hanging on to that's not worth hanging on to and grab a hold of something that's worth hanging on to, the cross of Jesus Christ. I got right with the Lord in the fall of 1980, uh, excuse me, the, the fall of 85. I surrendered totally to the Lord in uh, January of 1986. And during that time, we were at a meeting down in Florida, and boy, the Lord was just speaking to my heart. He, he was showing me things that I'd never seen before. I was so 
I was so in tune with the Holy Spirit. My life was so revolutionized. It was so changed from what it once had been. And one of the brothers in our church that I shared a hotel room with, we're fellowshipping and we're talking about the things of God. And I said, brother, I'll tell you, I don't know if I was saved before, but I know I'm saved now. And you know, that was well-meaning. And that's how I felt at that time. I was so the contrast between how my heart was before and how it was now, it was just, I didn't mean anything by it. But I think that both God and the devil heard that saying, that that statement that I made. And I think God's looking at it and saying, Son, so you're saying that you are trusting your salvation because how you feel right now? Because you're not going to always feel like that. God knew it. You know, he's a father that understands. You know, fathers understand their children. They've already been through it. They're looking back. And so, God, I think he looked at, heard what I said. The devil heard what I said. Said, well, if you don't know when you got saved, how do you know you are saved? I went through an entire year of doubting and struggling and all of that. I, I mean, I thought that God was kind of being cruel. Why don't you help me here, Lord? But now I look back at it, and it was the most loving, faithful thing that God could have ever done for me, because by allowing me to go through all that trouble and turmoil and basically take that feeling away from me, He brought me to the point in my life where I said from the depths of my heart, Lord, I don't deserve to be saved, and I cannot make you save me. All I can do is put my faith and trust in your son, Jesus Christ, and the cross of Calvary. So God, if you, if you don't want to save me and you send me to hell, that's what I deserve anyways. I turned loose of that control. I turned loose of any ability to save myself or thinking that I could do anything to improve my situation. And I said, God, if you send me to hell, I'm going to hell trusting Jesus Christ as my Savior. And that settled it for me right then and right there. I'm not going to say I've never had a doubt ever since, but I will say this. My faith went from being subjective to being objective. It wasn't how I felt. It wasn't my memory of when I got saved. It was simply, look, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that He is able to keep that which I've committed unto Him against that day. If your faith is not objective, I encourage you, I implore you, I beg of you to get saved before you leave this place today. Would you bow your heads in prayer with me? Our Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I thank you for the cross of Calvary. And Lord, I pray that you take this message here today. Lord, from these feet of clay, from this vessel of clay, and I pray that you take and use it for your glory and honor and for the good of each and every listener. If anyone that has listened today is without Jesus Christ, I pray that they'd be saved before they leave this place today. Lord, I pray that you'd give them the grace and the strength to recognize their need. Lord, draw them to the cross of Calvary. Lord, thank you for Jesus and the cross. Thank you for the gospel message. 
We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.